Welcome to COPcast from Climate Home News. I'm Megan Darby, Deputy Editor and one of the hosts of this podcast. We are on day four of COP. Uh, Before we jump into today's news, I'd like to thank our supporter, the Stockholm Environment Institute. Um, They do some great research. My personal favourite is uh, their work on fossil fuel supply side policy, Um, but that's just a personal preference. Check it out at sei.org. Carl Matheson, the editor of Climate Home News, is here with me. Hi, Megan. How are you going? Pretty good, Carl. Um, So tell me, Carl, what is going on in the negotiations today? Sort of waiting with bated breath for negotiators to come out with their responses to the draft text that was brought out today. We don't really know what was in there yet. It's been still hundreds of pages. And uh, so we'll sort of see over the next day or so what their response is going to be. So a little bit of a holding pattern still, I'm afraid. And one of the most contentious issues in the rule book is around finance and specifically, um, you know, what developed countries are going to do to um, make it predictable and reliable for developing countries uh, so that they can, uh, you know, plan their climate action. Um, What's happening there? There's been uh, some interesting comments from the EU today and um, on one side you have the poor countries saying make it predictable, allow us to plan and on the other side you have developed countries saying well it's actually really hard for us to budget five years in advance because we're all on you know our own political budget cycles and that's kind of not how our constitution works so uh elena bardram the e one of the eu negotiators was at a press conference today and uh sarah stefanini our senior reporter went down um and bardram was sort of flagging a compromise where she kind of put an olive branch out to the poorer countries and said that there might be a way to like have a quote qualitative and quantitative projection which i guess means it's a bit of a fudge but they want to sort of wave a flag and say oh we're going to do what we can well we'll have to see if that's enough i guess looking at a different aspect of climate finance it's happening in parallel and that's the green climate fund it's a really important um symbol and totem of cooperation between rich and poor countries um it's set up with equal numbers of developed and developing countries on the board um to do climate finance differently and it's a bit of a critical time for them because they need to um, both raise a new round of funds and also appoint a new executive director. So the deadline for applications for executive director is not till next week. Japan has taken the unusual step of publicly nominating somebody, an experienced diplomat called Kanichi Suganuma. You spoke today to one of the officials from the foreign ministry. What did they have to say about it? Yeah, that's right. I spoke to Kaoru Magasaki and he told me that um, Japan is the biggest donor to the fund. Uh, They put in 1.5 billion and since the US has uh, backtracked, um, that makes them the, the biggest donor so far. Magasaki said, you know, given we're the biggest donor, Uh, we have the biggest responsibility to make sure the fund operates smoothly in the future. That argument is not going to 
play well with everybody. I then asked um, South African board members Zahir Fakir what he thought about that. Um, and, and he said, you know, the amount of money put in holds no weight in the decision um, and it will be decided by the board based on agreed criteria. So what you've got is the biggest donor now that the US has stopped sending money to the Green Climate Fund because Donald Trump decided not to. The biggest donor, Japan, saying that because they're putting in the most money, they have the most responsibility or another way of putting that is they have the biggest interest in seeing where that money goes um, and that's not going over well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the idea of this and to the developing countries, climate finance, it's not a gift. It's not a, um, you know, a generous donation. It's like a matter of justice. You know, uh, the developed countries cause this problem. Um, and so they owe this money and um, it's for the developing countries to decide and have a you know, really strong role in deciding how that money is spent. Um, Another interesting development is Russia is maybe about to um, make a contribution. It's something that um, officials kind of dangled the possibility of years ago, um, but an advisor told me today that they're just going through the final legal steps and they should have a contribution of a few million uh, coming through in the next few days. So. Um, you know, we'll believe it when we see it, but that's quite interesting because Russia is classed as an economy in transition, which means that they're not obliged to um, contribute to climate finance under the UN Climate Convention, but um, but they can choose to do so. So it's a kind of indication that they also want to play a role in this um, and influence how it goes. Speaking of climate finance, I had a really interesting conversation with a woman from the Pacific today called Tangaloa Kupahalo. Uh, she's from the island. She taught me how to pronounce it, uh, Niue. Uh, I've always uh, wondered and I had a really interesting chat to her about the island and uh, the challenges of getting climate finance to such a vulnerable and faraway place. My name is Tangaloa Kupa and I'm from a small country, Niue, N-I-U-E, in the South Pacific, but I work for the Regional Secretariat of the Pacific Regional Environment Programme and I'm the Director for the Climate Change Resilience Programme. Tell me a little bit about Niue. You know what, I wouldn't do Niue justice to tell you a little bit about it. Um, Niue is, is probably one of the best kept secrets, not just, just of the Pacific, but of the world. It's a very small country. It is probably the small, one of the smallest populations with a full-on government in the world. However, it is the largest raised coral atoll in the world. It is a standalone island and we're Polynesian. Sounds really nice and, and beautiful. And just to get a picture of it, like you're saying it's one island raised up and then surrounded or like fringed by reefs. Yes. So it's, it's actually, if you could imagine a cake that's been pushed up out of the ocean, it's three main tiers. And so it's quite high. Um, in terms of Pacific Island countries, it's quite, it's probably the highest... Um, 
in terms of um, off sea level. Yeah, because it's very coastal, a very rugged um, coral environment. So when you say uh, it's, it, 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 do you mean it's got a, expo- a high exposure to sea level rise? No, it doesn't. Because, but it, you know, it does. In, it, it is impacted by sea level rise because the water lens, its entire water source is the water lens. It's not mountainous, and so there are no rivers. Um, although there are, you know, water people have their home catchments, but the source of water for new that supports new and the newer population is from the water lens. So salt water intrusion, you know. Sea level rise does affect the quality of, of uh, the waterlands. Can you tell me a little bit then about what climate finance is and what it means for the population there? Well, climate finance and what it means is no different for the population on Niue than it is for any other Pacific Island country. It is an avenue for small governments that already have very limited recurrent budgets that are that is prioritized to health infrastructure and other development is, you know um, issues so climate finance enables those countries to access the finance so they can um, adapt to climate change and meet those challenges and you know what climate finance is owed to the to those countries there's lots of challenges. One of the biggest challenges is just the complexity and the uh, fiduciary requirements and the establishment and strict, um, um, re- uh, guess, requirements of not just the GCF but other um, multilateral climate the green climate fund. Sorry but also other big donors as well. And you were talking about small countries with small workforces who are in the evening a part of uh, girls' brigade, boys' brigade, church groups, fishing groups, and by day could be the secretary to government who who could be uh, in the chamber of commerce. So in smaller countries in the Pacific, to give you context, People wear several hats, and so that's already a stretched uh, capacity. And then to access climate finance to respond to your uh, country's need, um, for example, in food security, sourcing more resilient crops that can, uh, you know, that can still thr- live and thrive in in. Uh, in water, in, in 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 salt water, that's that's hard for countries because it changes the way their culture is. It changes the way they farm. It changes the way uh, that they essentially live in their countries. So, what does the Pacific need from developed countries? I've got a first cousin. He lives in London. He's a doctor in London, and I was. He always says to me, you know, because we talk about our kids and often he'll say, where's your boy? And I say, well, he's going to get a big hiding when he comes. We saw island parents. He said, you know, that's so lovely. I said, you know, he, I'm watching him and he's gauging whether 
he can make it to the neighbor's house before I catch him <laughs> to come home and have dinner. And he said, you know, my children will never know that because you don't do that. You know, and he said, my children will never know what it's like to, you know, come home, climb trees next door, go down to the sea, and, and we still have that. So our children are very fortunate, but we want them to have what we have. We want them to give their children what they have now. And that's just again going set to get harder and harder. And if countries don't stand up and accept the 1.5, um, you know, in the outcomes of the IPCC report, then we have one Pacific, we have one chance. So anything, anything less than that is not optional for us. It's very difficult to, to rationalise that with the larger countries who are industrialised countries and don't, don't live, I guess, the lives that we live on the, you know, on the, on the, uh, on the front lines. That's it for this COPcast. Thank you to Carl Matheson and our producer, Soilo Aparizio. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud and we're now available on iTunes as well. Climate Home News is on Twitter and Facebook and you can subscribe to our newsletter by going to www.climatechangenews.com. See you tomorrow.